Recently, I was reading a short piece of verse by the Swedish poet Thomas Tranströmer. It goes like this. 2am. Moonlight. The train has stopped out in a field. Far off sparks of light from a town, flickering coldly on the horizon. As when a man goes so deep into his dream, he will never remember that he was there when he returns again to his room. The poem goes on a little further and then finishes with a near repetition of the picturesque image that we had at the start. The train is entirely motionless. Two o'clock. Strong moonlight. Few stars. Now perhaps this caught my attention because I live in a motionless train. And in turn it only seemed logical to go out and bear witness to it, sitting in the moonlight. To be watchful and see if it prompted similarly poetic thoughts. By day the carriage is bright red. You should know this. But even in the brightest nocturnal luminescence, this is not obvious. It is a kind of silver then, and it seems like the sort of wagon that might have once been spotted on the railway lines running out of Kabul or Constantinople some exotic Orient Express that has somehow come too far to the east and ended up in Tasmania. If only, what a good yarn that'd be. Meanwhile, the trees all around it, which have an argent tint to them in autumn anyway, because the bark is peeled back to reveal the wood's secret notes. They now take on a liquid form, and their shadows run up and down throughout the forest, and as this strange light sets in, a whole new regime takes over the bush. It seems to me that plovers love moonlit nights, maybe bandicoots as well, and the native hens kick up a special racket, not just their usual one, and countless frogs will croak, soaking up the lunar light through the thin membrane of their skin. But nothing makes the forest feel more alive than the hoots and yelps of bubuks. Throughout the night, pairs will repeat their bisyllabic hoot. This apparently is an act of staking out their territory. But there are an array of other calls that come out from the darkness, as if the issue of some abyss. All manner of shrieks and honks. If the literature is right, many of these are from female bubuks, soliciting cooperation from their male partners, perhaps asking for food or sexual activity. And some sounds are defensive, or made as males duel. Others seem simply to be a way for a pair of bubuks to keep in touch throughout the night. Plenty happens in these evening hours although most of us humans are privy to only a small percentage of it. Owls don't experience darkness as we do. They have massive eyes, you may have noticed, which naturally help them see better at night. 
but furthermore among the photoreceptors clustered in those eyes, owls have a far larger proportion of rods compared to cones, which simply means they have extra biological help to develop their night vision. Bubuks, like other owls, also have an evolutionary enhancement which we call eye shine, a sort of reflective tissue behind their retinas which helps magnify the light that filters in through their gaping great peepers. Humans, I guess, see pretty poorly at night, and some of us have worse sight than others. Historically, we've hidden away from other creatures once the sun has gone down. We learn to shelter in caves or yurts or huts or igloos or shacks or train carriages. There are theories that people developed language skills to tell stories late at night so that we could account for the things that we feared, the issues that are stowed away in the shadow realm, the threats that lay beyond where the flames of the campfire could flicker. Now, if that's the case, then surely darkness is the source of the deepest parts within us, the essence of our personalities. A friend of mine recently came to visit here at the train. He'd just emerged, quite scathed, from a summer of trauma. And he was taking comfort in another poem, the work of Theodore Retke, who wrote, In a dark time, the eye begins to see. I meet my shadow in the deepening shade. I hear my echo in the echoing wood. Strange it is how poets are so well acquainted with darkness. In the spirit of such writers, I recently eked myself out of bed at a late hour and watched the moon rise over the carriage. It was a crescent, like a perfect letter C, and it burnt like a brand as it appeared among the trees. Gradually it scattered the stars, as if thrown like a sort of discus into their midst. I had the sensation that one day, perhaps years from now, I would be living a very different sort of life. And when I remembered that I had once lived in this peaceful place, this old train carriage in the bush, it will be quite like I have imagined the whole thing. It will be, as the poet put it, like waking to a room, the dream now out of reach.
The other week I accepted a commission from a science magazine to do a day's work writing short articles from press releases they sent me. Typically, I didn't really know what I was doing. But, you know, I figured I could nut it out. Why not? One of the pieces I had to write was drawn from a short report by astronomers using the Hubble telescope. They had discovered a new star, they said, which they reckoned had to have been born no more than a billion years after the Big Bang. So, like, it's pretty bloody old. In order to write the article, I had to go down the rabbit hole a little bit, learning about the generation of stars more broadly. And I must confess, I'm no expert on astronomy. Which is perhaps a shame, because I spend much of my life outdoors. I stroll around under the open sky when I brush my teeth, for example, or go out to find a late-night lavatory spot under some tree and I sleep out beneath the stars more often than most people do. It's not uncommon for me to be up in the mountains, or lying around outside after having a sauna with my neighbour, watching the shooting stars shear off into oblivion, and to drift off out in the open, and wake at intervals and see how the constellations are swirling slowly across the sky. But I've never been diligent enough in keeping track of what's going on up there, despite my general interest in everything that happens around me. There was that one night sleeping on a Turkish beach with a bunch of ratbags who taught me a saucy sort of song about things that are good to do beneath the stars. But that hardly counts as proper astronomy, I guess. I have sometimes read, with equal interest, accounts of Aboriginal astronomy. Because, of course, what Europeans envisioned in the scattered fragments above us was not the same as what was seen by those in other cultures. Aboriginal observers, for instance, from disparate locations around this large continent, have often addressed not just the brilliant pinpoints of distant light, but the segments of darkness in between them. For example, figures are seen in a conspicuous black space wedged into the Southern Cross, within the murk of the Milky Way. In today's scientific journals, you might see this described as an absorption nebula, a thick cloud of interstellar dust, plasma and gas. Among the old people, it was seen as a stingray in one part of the country, or an emu in another, and plenty of other things in between. In European folklore, it was called the coal sack, which is somewhat less romantic, and perhaps not quite as ancient either. And given the reputation of coal right now, you might wish to come up with your own nickname for that black splotch between the bright lights. There is a passage in the diary of George Augustus Robinson that often comes to mind when I'm sleeping out. Robinson travelled the bush in the early years of colonisation on an ill-conceived mission to save or protect or convert the Aboriginal Tasmanians. And this, of course, is not how it panned out. But there are poignant moments in his journals. One night in the northwest of the island, on Takaina country, he shared his blankets with his Indigenous fellow travellers and listened as they described their stellar maps. 
They spoke of the stars with great zest, he scrawled the next day. They are quite at home on the subject. Robinson had a tendency to state what seems obvious to us. And of course, after countless generations under the skies, all traditional communities must have had a plethora of ways of speaking about stars. It's only with industrialization that we stopped giving a shit. So it is that I have had to slowly rebuild a bit of knowledge for myself. Using the internet, I warily picked my way into the astral realm as best I could. But although my computer screen has some internal light source, I felt I was entering a rather tenebrous warren, descending into chambers and galleries of terrible darkness. In the way that darkness is nothing more than an absence of light, I sometimes think of this electrical glow that it simply makes an absence of dark. It was great to get a bit of work writing about science and to spend some time learning about the cosmos, but I can't say I enjoyed being chained to my computer for a day. It's been a while since I've had to do that. It made me crave going outdoors again, camping rough, looking up at the vast canopy of the sky with its disparate distant specks. Soon I would take my backpack back up to the plateau and look through the covering of my tent at the stars, which at this time of the year start to seem like the blebs of icicles. I remembered one such sleep out, a favourite memory in fact. I was bushwalking with a couple of mates and we rolled out sleeping mats at a high point, looking south over a broad valley. And truth be told, we'd gotten rather tipsy. We stayed up late, slurping wine, slipping into giggling and gaiety. And finally, just when our vision was perhaps getting distrustfully blurry, a thick white beam began dancing over the horizon, waving like a long banner of silk. It was the Aurora Australis. What struck me most was that its movement came without sound. Here was something immense, a powerful phenomenon that paired itself with silence. Later it struck me that I have a lack of potent stories to explain these auroras. More easily than almost anyone in the history of the planet, I can learn in a heartbeat exactly what is happening up there, but that doesn't quite equate to having a properly good yarn about it something that speaks to why this phenomenon touches us so deeply. Everyone who's ever lived far enough north or south has made interesting myths about the auroras they've seen. We might need to work on that again. Because it's not only that they make great photos, I promise you that. And we might say the same about the star that's most familiar to all of us. What do we know about the sun? Well, scientists say it's about 4.6 billion years old, and aside from the usual assortment of hydrogen and helium, it also contains heavy elements like neon, magnesium and iron in small percentages. Exactly what percentages is apparently up for debate. So I read the other day. And it seems it's pretty important for the fate of our planet, although not so much for us. For astronomers, I learned, 
can estimate the lifespan of a star based on its metallicity, a word I'd never heard before. Generally, scientists are guessing that we're about halfway through the tenure of our favourite star. It should exhaust its fuel in about five billion years, and it will be sad to see it go. Thrown into global darkness, we would miss the success of our crops as well as our days at the beach. The moon, of course, would be just another blank bit of rock circling around the universe if it didn't have the sun's light upon it to reflect. There's an old cliche. When it's dark enough, you can see the stars. But I don't need to tell you that without the sun there will be no terrestrial eyes to enjoy the newly demonstrated brilliance of the other constellations in our galaxy. So the sun too is probably something that we want to get to know a bit better while we've still got it. This fella met me down at the dam, which was more like a pool or sort of like a flooded quarry. He had a mess of dark curls, some greying teeth, a navy blue windcheater. He looked about 45. A nice enough bloke, a bit melancholy. He followed me down to the picnic area, which I recognised better although the layout was different from how I'd seen it before. A large frame had been installed, with big sheets of a heavy canvas over a beam, and on each bit of canvas there was a fact file on someone from the neighbourhood who had died. And as this bloke started to head towards the toilet, he explained that one of these was his ex-partner. And on it went. This was a dream. I sleep in a small timber shed out the back of the train carriage. I leave the door ajar and sleep under a heavy down blanket on flannel sheets so that I keep warm. Outside I have hung a ratty looking dream catcher this young man gave me in Iran, although I have no sentimental attachment to him or his creation and more often than not I forget that it's there. It feels as though the dreams pour in, flow through the fly screen from the outdoors, given to me by the owls and frogs and narky hens and possums and whomever else visits me at night when I do not know about it. And I often have long, laborious, intricate dreams. 
Those who reckon they can interpret my dreams are instantly the target of my suspicions. Lately I have been dreaming of a particular species of bird, you see. Something that's not at all seen commonly. Now who is it that will claim they can give me the symbolic meaning of the satin flycatcher? Go on. I'll listen. There was a television comedian having a heart attack, two in a row. I saw both happen on some sort of videotape that skipped or was spliced in an interesting way. He looked kind of like an actor I faintly recognised from a 90s sitcom show. The first heart attack took place as he was telling a story in his role as the host of a talk show. The second as he leaped from the top bunk in a hotel room to his lover who was in the lower berth. She called him a randy old thing, or something to that effect, but then noticed spots of blood on his shirt. He had a gash on the upper left side of his chest, nearer to his collarbone than his heart, but it seemed that he had lost something that would prevent another cardiac arrest. My glope, he said miserably. I don't have my glope anymore. I flick through my journals and see what I did last autumn and winter. And it seems that I dreamed a lot. I turn willingly at this time towards the dark realm of the unconscious and let stories unravel. This is a tremendous gift. I love stories. And honestly, the ones that I create unwittingly are at least as good as the ones I labour over all day long, frowning with pen in hand or squinting at my laptop. The dreams are never more mad, Captain, when I've had to visit the city or have missed out on some sleep in the nights beforehand. And then I'm house-sitting. Two pets skulk about unhappily. Which species they are, I cannot say. But they have not been fed, and piles of their faeces are everywhere. Pot plants lie about half-withered. I have clearly been neglectful. There are great growths of saffron-coloured fungi in the sink. I go to clean up the pet's mess, and they greet me cheerfully, so the animals still like me despite my inattention. And through the window I can see the neighbours, two teenage girls, one heavily tattooed. There are a lot of tattooed people in my dreams but I don't keep too many theories about dreams. I do know that I disagree with anyone who doesn't admire them. Those who say that they're acts of neurosis, signs of mental stress. Surely dreaming is as natural as breathing, as hoping, as sleeping. We've become terribly literal, most of us. We skid over the surface of all we see and hear and feel very rarely delving into deeper meanings. But sometimes in dreams we are forced to contend with the hidden aspects of the world and how they interact with our own obscured characteristics. So I choose not to fear what will come forth throughout the hours of sleep, although I do occasionally have nightmares. Every now and again they're related to war, invasion or censorship. I suppose from childhood, ever since I saw news reports of the siege of Sarajevo, 
I've had such scenes seared into my memory. And so the possibility of violence, displacement and internment remains active well beneath the surface of my mind. In my darkest dreams, I sometimes see acts of torture of such brutality that I would never describe them. I'm glad that they don't tend to stay with me throughout the next day. And in some ways, I just take them as a reminder that political concerns, news reports, and accounts of the fate of nations underpins my everyday mood, even when I don't notice it. Many of my dreams, on the other hand, are intriguing adventures into specific places. I have a terrific dream geography. In some of my dreams, I even see proper imagined maps, like this set that I found stitched onto handkerchiefs, marking out invented council regions of New South Wales, including one labelled Kosciuszko. There was also the map of Western Asia that showed a slightly skew-whiff but otherwise creditable version of Georgia and Armenia, and that of Russia, which pointed out where populations of elephants could still be found. Seemingly all of my favourite regions in Tasmania are all linked together by oniric pathways. Who would have thought that if you climb further up from the Cataract Gorge, beyond the neighbourhood of Trevallon, you would soon reach the walls of Jerusalem National Park, which of course has Kunani Mount Wellington on the other side. And the other week, with an acquaintance of mine, I was about to set out on a road trip to Northern Europe, towards the Baltic countries, I believe, or maybe Poland. But just before we set out, would you believe it? A bird was biting me, its beak clamped onto my finger. It was a bloody satin flycatcher too. Go on, tell me the meaning of it. I dare you. Over the years, I've come across a couple of theorists who suggest that humans may be innately uncomfortable in forests. They say that our species evolved on the plains, that we grew tall to scan the vistas for strife, and that woodlands don't suit human psychology, that we feel hemmed in and enclosed, scared by shadows, that we don't like the lack of panoramic views. The forest, says one writer, has been a sylvan fringe of darkness which define the limits of cultivation, the margins of the city, and the extravagance of the human imagination. It's powerful writing, but perhaps it's not such a far-fetched thesis. 
I've noticed that I too am a great admirer of open spaces, and that sometimes it feels like home range, as if it's a human instinct to want to see far and stride broadly. And plenty of us seem to feel a pull towards sunny lookouts, expansive outlooks. But what then of all the world's forest folks? They don't seem so frightened by the bosky darkness. Humans can fit in in the woods. We have adapted to far worse. The sylvan fringe of darkness isn't so shrouded in terror for all of us. And there's no need to fear these crepuscular retreats, the cathedral-like dusk of thick bush. The Japanese writer Junichiro Tanazaki wrote a great book called In Praise of Shadows, in which he implied that there was much beauty and poignancy in subtly lit interiors, in sharing the place in which you dwell with shadows. It works for me. You see, I don't have electricity here in this train carriage shack. Not yet. I've only been living here two and a half years. And I might get it soon, or so I keep saying. But in the meantime, I arrange candles wherever they won't set my books on fire and find myself cooking dinner by the light of a head torch. Nowadays the sun ducks behind the white gums early on and casts a puzzle of shadows on the lawn and puts the front deck in shade. It's not as photogenic, perhaps, as if I had a broad balcony view over a whole valley. I could take a picture of my beer glass with a blurry dale as a backdrop but I am content to let that aesthetic trend pass me over. Let the canopy close in over my carriage, creating hiding places for birds and possums and paddy melons, as well as for myself. And surely stout and long nights go together in just as picturesque a manner. There are forest species that need darkness. For instance, it turns out that the shade of trees protects the most miniature of plants, the herb-like species that often sprout undramatically on the forest floor. If they're exposed to too much light, these plants succumb to an overdose of nitrogen, often the result of runoff from chemicals humans have introduced into the landscape but having a canopy over them reduces that effect and lets these tiny plants that barely any person notices continue to play their significant part in the life of these ecosystems, recycling nutrients and hastening the decomposition of leaf litter, helping the next lot of trees grow tall in a splendid, shadowy act of symbiosis. If I climb up onto the ridge behind the carriage, I will see a curious yellow constellation down in the valley. The brightest lights are those positioned on the top of the farm's irrigators for whatever reason, and a dozen or so street lights glow beyond them. Peer closely and I can see the televisions flicker. I live on the edge of a village with about 200 souls living in it. Needless to say, I've spent time in places with more people, cities endlessly illuminated by artificial means where the stars are blotted out by the arc of sulphur-coloured haze that curves over the furthest suburbs. It is strange that this has become passably normal for most people in the world. 
we've swapped out our long-standing relationship with the night for a fairly superficial fling with electric lighting. Yet I suppose each city has its dark places too. As measured in lumens, they must be less dark than night in the mountains or the desert, but there's something to be said for the nature of urban darkness. Maybe I'm simply not well adapted, but I am much more likely to be intimidated by being alone in the back streets, those urban pockets without light, than I ever would be roaming around the bush without a torch. I think of late nights in San Francisco or Mexico City or Launceston, and it's as if the shadows are always at their blackest just beyond the orange glow of street lamps. I sometimes think that a city is a strange simulacrum of a forest. The skyscrapers rise like the tallest of gums. They press heavy shadows over the network of streets, and whole suburbs submit to living in the shade of the tall buildings that rise skyward like Babel. The woodlands that once lived where many cities now stand are usually long gone. And there is a mania about making clearings that for me adds to the suggestion that there's some psychological impulse that gives permission to certain people to hate or fear forests. Even still, cities are not entirely separate from the natural phenomena of the night and of life. Take Melbourne, for instance. A recent study found 176 species of insects living in one of my favourite parts of the city, Prince's Park. Busy scavenger beetles, wise weevil-like bugs, leggy heteroptera, glamorous green plant hoppers, wasps that look like comic book villains. Such critters have their own affinity with dark places. They work with plant matter and dirt transferring biomass, recycling nutrients, releasing energy from plants and fungi so that they might feed the bigger beings. They crawl through the manicured lawns, climb upon the poa and lamandra grasses, buzz between the branches of everything from iron barks to elms. For many of these, the soil is their dark kingdom, and we are foolish to forget that most of life comes from what is beneath us. Insects only let us pretend we are their overlords. We would be buggered without the bugs. Equally, we need fungi. And perhaps it is the contrast of curious glow-in-the-dark mushrooms, like the species of Omphalotus that grows in the bush here behind the train, that remind us best that their existence is mostly out of sight, secretive, subterranean, and sourced from darkness. We are still rather ignorant as to all the work that fungi do to support the above-ground life, practically connecting and feeding everything. And on top of that, we rarely stop to thank the marsupials, which, in Australia at least, are often responsible for moving mushy spores around the traps, making the mycorrhizal work possible on a large scale. I promise I will be thinking of all this whenever I next make a nocturnal ramble in Melbourne. Even if I am just going from one pub to another, I assure you I will do so with my eyes wide open to the presences of ringtail possums, fruit bats, cicadas and spiders, all those who share that sprawl with millions of humans. <laughs>
We make life hard for them with our rampant clearing and concreting. And the humans suffer that too. The lack of connection with living ecologies. When I visit cities, I think again on how humans have been able to adapt to the most extreme habitats on the planet. Even in concrete sprawls far from the sources of solitude, quiet and darkness. In Prince's Park one night, Speaking of bugs, I have a friend in Melbourne who has that nickname. And in Prince's Park one night, I saw what can happen to humans when they leave the glow of the city and slip into the shadows. In this case, it was just simple slapstick. A few of us had been watching the footy on the TV. And excited by the results, I guess, we went running out with a ball of our own. And as we sprinted into the shadow of the stadium, my good mate Buggy had a prang on an invisible park bench, running into it shin first and tumbling over it in the timeless manner of a stuntman. It was fittingly, I guess, that Buggy landed hard in the grass, there amongst all his insect mates. That Swedish poet I mentioned, Thomas Trentstrummer. Sometimes you'd think he has mostly subsisted on the icy darkness of Nordic winters. I suppose more than most other nationalities. Scandinavians know their seasons intimately. And if you cannot handle long weeks without sunshine, if you will falter at the sight of icicles or the bone-chilling brusqueness of an arctic blast. Perhaps it would be best not to persist for too long in that part of the world. And you should certainly not be a poet. For this is seemingly a vocation that requires you from time to time to plummet into solitude and obscurity and emerge with a few paltry verses which, for poets, amounts to something victorious. The season of darkness is like a deep velvet bag full of feelings. 
It has the richest of textures. Squinting at the shapes around you at night, you will see new forms revealed. For example, a friend told me recently about a late excursion through a tree-lined neighbourhood during which he went to frighten a wallaby but found that it wouldn't budge because it was a rock. That is only one such transformation. And likewise, in the winter months, you may peer into the darkness of your innermost being and perceive certain figures. And sometimes these perceptions will be wrong. You light a match and flash a brief flaring light at some of these internal animals and wrongly get the impression that they are monsters. But you have surely seen before how long shadows can make giants out of ants. Yet I also reckon that occasionally the visions we have in total darkness are the truest. Sometimes, blinded, we can see more clearly. As those without sight so skillfully do, you begin to intuit by touch. And since so much these days has a fraudulent surface, it is perhaps for the best that we do not rely entirely on our ocular sensations. Maybe equatorial people won't understand. Lying back in their hammocks, with a gamelan playing in the background, drinking cassava beer or a ruck, they will enjoy their fruitful year-round heat, while those of us who live within cooey of the poles must learn to bunker down and to retreat. And therefore we learn another skill. Pick up a knack for huddling, for hanging on, for passing time, for dreaming. The Stoics may have been a Mediterranean mob, but to me Stoicism seems a trait for winter. The hardships wrought by cold weather and long nights give a profound rhythm to existence. Great undulations across the landscape of the years of our lives. Friends, you drank of darkness and so became visible. So says Thomas Trenstrummer. Familiarity with night themes makes you a more robust creature, I reckon. If you face your sorrow, your loneliness, your somnolence and your fears, if you survive your worst nights, you will outlast most miseries. Strange how in the pooling darkness you can also have your most clarifying thoughts. But darkness, after all, is where things are born. The womb, for instance, is our dark abode for the first months of our existence. A seed grows instinctively when we sow it in the soil. The darker the better. Even the most extroverted ideas have their origins in the secret recesses of the mind. They're nourished by darkness first of all. That's how they take on form. I'll mention Thomas Trenstrummer one more time and then I'll stop banging on about him and mispronouncing his name probably. 
one of my favourite poems of his, is comprised of a simple series of winter visions. It's a kind of handful of haiku-like verses that bring alive the dark season of Scandinavia. I thought perhaps I would give you some of my own. I'm sure they're inferior to his. But for those of you who live far away, I send them like a postcard from the Tasmanian night as we begin our descent to winter. And if you too share this island and its long dark hours, take them instead as a small offering from somewhere deep within my soul, an attempt to put communal memories into words, or to prompt an evocation of some poems of your own. Here we go. One. It has snowed on the plateau, and so the crescent moon rises like a corner separated from the snowpack. Cold, clear, bearing crystals, curling. Two. The fire crackles, altogether too eager, as if flames have found pockets of combustible gas inside the logs. And the wick of the candle lets out a harsh laugh as it gives up. Three. Tonight I crack open the flat plastic box that contains years of documents, videos and photographs. There is Hannah, under the pines, an hour out of Helsinki, in her knickers, doing her yoga stretches. My heart strains towards her. So then, this is loneliness. Four. Memories of playing footy in the frost. My fingers rosy like the dawn, pink and numb and useless. After the game, hot chips are a must. Five. After all this rainfall, the soil is black. From this dark source, what will soon come forth is a sweet of the brightest colours. I do love riding on these long nights and throughout the cold days. I love the fog, love the owls, love the stars, love the possums, love the mushrooms, love the rain. Tonight I feel like I could write thousands of these pithy little poems. And I just might. After all. It's only seven o'clock. I have quite a few hours ahead of me like this. Plenty of time to write.